You can be seated. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, turn in your Bibles to the first chapter of Luke, verse 26. As always, the words are up on the screen, but it takes some time for you all to get there in your own Bibles. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with, with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Excuse me, a virgin. And the Lord answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, prepare our hearts. Really prepare our hearts to receive your word this morning. We thank you for reigning. We thank you for being king. We thank you for ruling our hearts. We just thank you for who you are, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Andrew. Now, I don't know what it's like in your household. I know what it's like in my home. Um, we believe our house and the stuff within our house should be, um, the house should be lived in and the stuff should be lived with. So we don't have a whole lot of very um, special items that are the untouchable items in our, in our home uh, that the kids can't touch or things that only come out for special occasions that's just we just live in our home and we live with our stuff now there's some exceptions but usually those things are boxed up somewhere now in my mom's home however there were certain items you only use during certain times of the year like there were certain plates in the china cabinet that you didn't just get out and use those are special plates for special occasions or my mom had these towels in every bathroom that were the guest towels and decorative towels and decorative soaps and decorative everything. You just kind of had to know my mom to understand this. But 
I mean, if, when we, my, my, my brother and I were growing up, if we used one of the decorative towels, we heard about it. You can't touch that towel. That's only a guest towel. And so my mom's house had certain untouchable things or things that only came out for special occasions. As I think about this text here that we're looking at today, to be honest with you, I think that most of the time we don't even go to the narratives about the birth or the conception of Jesus Christ except when? That special time of the year. That special time of the year when we, when we bring out these stories. And we like to talk about these uh, events that happened. And I think that's kind of unfortunate. I think we've deprived the church of a lot of great truth by uh, setting aside these texts in our uh, China cabinet of the church calendar and only bringing them out for those special occasions. Well, as we go through this series and examine the life of Christ by going through the Gospels, we're bringing out the fine china this morning. We're bringing out the special towels this morning, and we're laying them out there for us to use. Matter of fact, if we want to use the imagery of fine china, let's say we're bringing out the fine china, and we're going to see and savor Christ. We're going to feast on Christ this morning, Lord willing, and eat and see Taste and see how good he is. So, this morning we are going to, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be going through these different passages that are usually only Christmas passages. So kids, I know that Christmas is your favorite time of the year, right? So you're going to have a blast over these next few weeks as we go through these texts. And maybe you can convince your parents to do Christmas at home. I mean, why not? Just go ahead and redecorate and, and maybe some gifts. I don't know. I'll let that, you handle that in your home, but it's, I've got Carrie over there giving me kind of an evil look. Don't put that in their mind. No, but really, let's enjoy these passages as we go through them today and over the next few weeks. Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ is the title of the uh, new message series that we have begun I want us to see and savor Christ today in this angelic proclamation to Mary about the conception and birth of Jesus. Now to recap a little bit, last week we were able to see and savor Christ in the amazing story of Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah. And the subsequent announcement about the very unusual birth of John the Baptist. Now that story of the arrival of, the John, of John the Baptist signaled something. And if you recall from last week, it signaled that God was again speaking to his people. And he was about to speak in a final and authoritative way through his son. It also signaled that the Holy Spirit was now once again at work within his people. And was about to work in a new and special way within his, the hearts of his people. It also signaled that the day of the Lord was now dawning. And of course, it signaled that Christ the Lord was coming. And that brings us to today's text. This story is probably the most celebrated and um, most extraordinary story in all of the Bible and in all of literature. In the history of the world, no story has been more celebrated than this story. But we know it is more than a story. It is a historical event. So let's start in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. That sixth month refers probably to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Because it's tied back. Remember, 
these, these divisions we have in the scripture, these headings that have been added into here where it says the birth of Jesus foretold in the ESV here, that's, that's added. That's not part of the actual scriptures. The verses weren't even uh, part of the scriptures, and they were added many, many years later. So if you go back to verse 24, you see it talking about how Elizabeth went into sort of hiding for five months while she was pregnant. And then we get to this verse, it talks about the sixth month. So this isn't necessarily referring to the day or the, the month of the year, but to the, uh, how far along Elizabeth is in her pregnancy. So the angel appears, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the first thing that just stands out to me is simply that, that this is all God sent. This is all God initiated. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. God dispatched a messenger of news, of amazingly good news, that would alter the course of human history. And he did so at a specific time, in a specific place, at an off-the-beaten-path, middle-of-nowhere town called Nazareth of Galilee, to a young teenage girl, probably 13 or 14 years old, named Mary, a bride-to-be. And this extraordinary story, this extraordinary God-initiated story, was a story written in his book from eternity past, but a story that came to be in the time and space of our human history some 2,000 years ago. The Christmas story, the gospel, is initiated here in this text. This is not a man-made story. No man could have written a story like this. Dr. Luke, who gives us this text, couldn't have... And wouldn't have come up with a story like this. Okay? First of all, he was a historian. And we know that he's trying to give us an orderly account of the life of Christ. Secondly, he's a doctor. And his reputation might be on the line if he starts telling stories about virgin births. And claiming that they're true. And so we, I believe, and I think we all know. If we believe in the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. That this is a true story. And this is no tall tale, this is history, this is God's story of redemption reaching its most important phase where God would break into the created order and become man. Now, there are a lot of amazing births in Scripture. A lot of amazing stories of children coming into being in Scripture. We've got the story of, of Isaac. That's an amazing story where Abraham and Sarah were way beyond childbearing years and God kept his promise and brought Isaac into being. And then we have other amazing births. You may not be aware that Samson's uh, parents uh, couldn't have children. They were barren. Samson's mom was barren until God intervened and Samson was born. And we know the story of Samuel's mom, Hannah. As she prayed and prayed and prayed for God to give her a child. And he, he did. Um, we have other Amazing births. We have just the story of, of Moses being born and, and how he was, um, his, the, the, the extraordinary circumstances surrounding his survival as a baby and how he was put into the, the basket and, and into the river and saved in that sort of way. And of course we read about John's birth that we talked about last week. All of these involve wonderful and amazing and even miraculous intervention by God. But this birth story stands out as extraordinarily unique. Never before and never again would a child come into the world like this. The conception and birth of Jesus Christ is an extraordinary story. And so our outline today, as you go through it in your notes, 
is based upon that. This conception and birth of Jesus Christ is an extraordinary story. And first of all, I want to talk about how it's a story of extraordinary grace. Verse 28, this is the angel. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. O favored one could be literally translated graced one. Gabriel comes to this young virgin girl betrothed to a man but not yet married and tells her that God's great grace is upon her. She has been graced. Don't misread the text here. The favor here that the text speaks of is God's unmerited favor upon Mary. Not favor that Mary has somehow earned from God. Gabriel is not saying, Mary, you are great, and therefore you're favored. The verb favored here is from the same word as favor mentioned in verse 30, where it says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And the word simply means grace. Literally, verse 28 says, graced one. And in verse 30, the angel tells her that she has found grace with God. Grace, by its very nature, is unmerited, unearned, and undeserved. Mary is not some special category of humanity unto herself, unlike all other humans, who has somehow earned special attention from God. The only other place in the New Testament where the verbal form of grace is used like it is here, this word favored, is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, where it clearly, clearly, clearly refers to the free bestowal of God's grace. I'll start in verse 5 of Ephesians 1. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, and here it comes, with which he has, and this is the verb, blessed us in the beloved. Ephesians 1 6 refers totally and only to the fact that we have received, not earned, but we have received grace from God. He has favored us, he has graced us, he has blessed us. Now, unfortunately, in the 4th century, there was a translation of the Bible into Latin known as the Latin Vulgate, which mistranslated this phrase as Ave Maria Grazia plena, which means Hail Mary, full of grace. You probably recognize the phrase, Hail Mary, full of grace. That unfortunate translation, even modern Roman Catholic scholars acknowledge this to be a bad reading of the Greek. But that unfortunate translation led to the medieval theology that Mary was somehow meritorious of God's action toward her, and that she herself, therefore, was a source of grace. That theology, unfortunately, persists unto today and is totally out of line with what the Scriptures actually say and is based on a horrible translation and worse application of the text. Mary is not full of grace in the sense that she is some sort of fountain of grace. Instead, she is in need of grace like every empty vessel. She needs to be filled. 
And the angel comes to her and makes that clear that she has received. She is the recipient of grace, of favor. She is not a source of it in any sort of way. This is a story of extraordinary grace from God poured out on a young lady who, like every other human being who has ever walked the face of the earth, was a sinner and therefore did not deserve grace, but absolutely and desperately needed it. Now that's not to say that Mary isn't a remarkable young lady. She did, after all, carry the Lord Jesus. This is a tremendous honor that has been bestowed upon her. She demonstrated humility and obedience in the text here. We see in her reaction in verse 29 that, that she is, is overwhelmed by this comment. Verse 29, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She's not haughty and proud. So yeah, yeah, look at me. Look how much grace I've received. Or look how great I am. She, she, she is troubled by the fact that the angel has said to her, you are being greatly graced by God. And that God is with you. She's reflective. She has to think about these things. They've troubled her heart. And she was also afraid. We know that from reading further in the text here. And as, in, as anyone in need of grace should be, when a, an angel appears to you, she reacts the way anyone would react when there's an appearance like that. As we read of it every time in Scripture, when, when fallen, sinful human beings see God or see God's messenger, an angel, and the glory of God present, what do they do? They fall. They fall to their face. They plead not to be killed. They're overwhelmed. And Mary here is overwhelmed. That is a demonstration that she's in need of grace. She knew it. And so when the angel says this to her, it overwhelms her. And later in the text, she demonstrates remarkable faith and, and remarkable maturity for her age. But let me say this as clearly as I can. If we elevate Mary beyond where the scriptures allow us to elevate her, then we rob Jesus of his glory in the story. I want us to see and savor Christ Jesus, and thus we must see and savor the grace of God at work in the miraculous virgin conception. Mary is not the central focus of this text she is not the central focus of the virgin conception. The focus is on God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, the triune God breaking into human history with grace. That is the focus of this text. See and savor Him, not Mary. What we should be excited about in terms of Mary is that God chose to confound the wisdom of the wise and bypass the powerful and those of noble birth in this world, and instead chose to use an unknown, unassuming, weak, 13 or 14-year-old girl, and by his grace alone, use her for a great and glorious task. So in each one of your sections on your notes there, I have a kind of a summary statement. And here's one thing I want to stick with you this morning. God chose to pour out extraordinary grace upon an ordinary girl from a no-name town, in the middle of nowhere, to bring about the pouring out of his extraordinary grace upon all his people everywhere. Because this is not only a story of extraordinary grace, it's the story of an extraordinary child. It's the story of an extraordinary 
child. See and savor the child Christ this morning. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I think he, he says that she's received favor twice because he sort of has to reaffirm her here of the grace that she has received before she's even able to hear what he's about to say. Okay, it's enough that she has seen an angel, and now he's about to tell her some pretty amazing facts about the child that she is going to bear, and she really needs grace. And she's going to see how much grace has been truly poured out upon her. Verse 31, And behold, you will receive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See and savor these verses. See and savor this miracle and this miracle child. There are five glorious truths about the child that are revealed here in this text. And I'm going to go ahead and give you all five of them so you can fill in your blanks and I can keep talking. Five extraordinary truths about this child. His name, his nature, his divinity, his royalty that we have sang glorious songs about this morning, and his eternality, his name. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now at first glance, uh, this may not have meant much to Mary. Jesus was a common Jewish name. In the Hebrew it is Yeshua or Joshua, which means God, Jehovah, saves, or God is salvation. So it was a fairly common name, but she had to begin to grasp the significance behind the name for a couple of reasons. First of all, the angels appearing to her and telling her to give the child a specific name. Well, then the name must be important for some reason. Okay? And then as she proceeds to hear what the angel says about this child, I think she begins to understand what, what this child is actually here to do. Mary, your child is to be named God saves. In Matthew, as Joseph is told about the child that Mary is carrying. Now remember Joseph, he hears about Mary's pregnancy, finds out about it. He decides he's going to divorce her quietly because the engagement even in Jewish, Jewish life, the engagement also had to be handled legally because an engagement was a legal binding, even though the marriage had not been consummated yet. And so, so Joseph was going to divorce her quietly because actually the penalty for adultery, and it would have been considered adultery, was death. And he was taking a, a gracious approach and was going to just divorce her quietly so that she could be saved. And the angel appears to him and and it was an angelic appearance to Joseph that changes his mind. And one of the things that the angel said to Joseph in verse 21 of Matthew 1, he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for, because, for, he will save his people from their sins. And the angels later here in Luke, as they appear to the shepherds, say this, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So we see... The first of all, the, the extraordinary information that the angel gives us about this child here is his name. And that he is going to be God's instrument of salvation to the world. This will be his work to seek and to save lost sinners. Only later will Mary fully understand 
that in order to save sinners, he must be crushed, he must die. Now, he will only be able to be the Savior because of who he is among mankind, which the angel is about to reveal to her. Number two, his nature. Verse 32, he will be great. He will be great. The Greek word for great doesn't take a whole lot of insight here. It's mega, megas. Okay, so we, we know that word. This Jesus, he is mega. He is great. Just how great? Well, Mary didn't understand it yet. She doesn't get the greatness until later in this passage. And she hears how his conception is going to come about. But for now, the angel simply says, he's great. It's simply who he is. Now let's, let's remember back to the, the pronouncement of John the Baptist's birth. The announcement of his coming birth. And, and the angel Gabriel says to Zechariah, he will be great before the Lord. He will be great before the Lord. There's a qualifier there. John the Baptist is great before the Lord. He is great because of the Lord's presence in his life. There's a qualifier for everybody in Scripture who is considered great in any sort of way. But for Jesus, there doesn't need to be a qualifier. Greatness is part of his nature. It's who he is. He is great. We don't need to qualify it in any sort of way. He is simply great. He is great because his nature makes him great. It is not granted to him. It is possessed by him. Greatness. Matter of fact, he gives greatness its definition. How great is he to you? This is what this series is all about. Seeing and savoring Jesus is great. I don't know if you understand the pressure when you come to a text like this. And, and, and there's a lot of information here. Okay, how, how, how many sermons are we going to do through this? Should we? But, but the pressure as you name your series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, is, okay, we need to see and savor the greatness of Christ in here and knowing how, how totally incapable I am of actually communicating the greatness of Christ to you guys and how incapable you guys are of comprehending the greatness of Christ. Therefore, we are totally dependent, just like Mary, upon the grace of God to just descend upon us and enable us to have eyes that see and ears that hear and give me a mouth to speak. Because he's too great for me to be able to come up with the right words to preach to you guys. He's too magnificent. And we use the word great. It's just too common of a word for us. You know, you know if, let's, say, let's say your child comes up and, and brings you a, a painting they did in kindergarten. And they bring it up to you and they show it to you and they're all excited about it. You go, oh, that's great, honey. That's just great. That's great. Now, if your child was extraordinarily gifted like a Picasso or something, and they bring some painting they've done, and it's just, it blows you away, that's a different definition of great. They show you that. You're not just, oh, that's great, honey. You're like, whoa, that's great. That's great. So I'm afraid we in church sort of have the, yeah, Jesus is great. He's great, yeah. That's the way we come here. We come with just sort of a, yeah, yeah, Jesus is great, instead of a, a of being blown away by his greatness. We, we are seeing a kindergarten painting as opposed to a Picasso because we are too sinful to really grasp the greatness of Christ. And we need grace. We need the intervention of Christ's grace into our hearts. We need to see the treasure. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the three apostles had their definition of great reworked. 
Jesus was great. And when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there appears Elijah and Moses. We talked a little bit about that last week. There appears Elijah and Moses. And then the glory of Christ is demonstrated as he is transfigured before them. Now, before he's transfigured, Peter has this brilliant idea to build three little shelters for, you know. I don't, Peter reminds me, did any other parents in here have kids that just sort of talk to talk? Okay. I think all of our kids struggle with that to a certain degree. They just want to talk. And that's Peter. Hey, hey, it's good that we're here. Let us just do And then, boom, Jesus changes. And what does Peter do? He hits the deck, as do the other disciples that are there. Their understanding of great, what a great situation, is whoop, changed in an instant when they see the true greatness of Christ and his glory on that Mount of Transfiguration. I think it changed their life forever when they saw that. I want us to see the treasure of Christ this morning and in this whole series. I was reading a story. How many of y'all have ever watched the, um, what's it called, the Antiques Roadshow on PBS? Where they, they, they bring, people bring in their mostly junk to these appraisers. And if it has any value, they sort of let them know, yeah, okay. You know, and they'll bring in old stuff. And Well, there was one lady... And this was several years ago, who brought in these, um, these old um, Chinese um, like um, sculptures, and um, they were made of jade. And um, they were kind of, they look old and beaten up, and you wouldn't be able to tell anything from just looking at them. She brings them and sets them before the appraiser, and it gets the appraiser's attention immediately. He begins to look at them, and he picks them up and turns them, around, you know, and he's, and he just starts saying, well, this is an extraordinary thing. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. Now, her father had brought these back in the 1930s or 40s when he had been on a business trip in China and just bought these things, found them somewhere. I think they said he spent $20 for the whole set of these, these jade little sculptures. And so he, she's, you know, explaining this to the guy. And he says, this is very rare. And it was some, like, really old jade sculptures, and I don't even know exactly what made them rare and great, but then he told her, he said, I'm appraising these items at $1.2 million. And that blew her away. What had one minute earlier been $30 worth of stuff that her dad had brought back from China, in an instant became worth $1.2 million. And she wisely sold them and made some money. And so I want us to see the treasure of Christ. Because I'm afraid he's just a $30 collection of facts for many of us. And not the treasure beyond all measure. Let us see and savor Christ. Why is he great? He's 100% man, being born of a woman, but he was also God. So this text also talks about his divinity. He will be called son of the most high is what the angel says. This is no ordinary child. There are references to talking about believers as the sons of God. But this is a different reference. This is talking about him being a son in a different way. Set apart, unique, distinct. He is the firstborn of all creation, the son. He is the divine word, the image of God, begotten from all eternity. Bees beget bees, birds beget birds, and God begets God. He is of the same essence of God. This reference here to Most High is the common designation in Scripture of God. El Elyon, Most High. The name specifically refers to His sovereignty and His power. 
And according to Hebrews 1, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He was to be, therefore, a sovereign king over the universe, but also the king of God's people. And so the next thing we see here is his royalty in verse 32. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. We talked about his royalty a lot last week. We know that legally he was born into the line of kings of David. We saw that as he was a part legally of Joseph's lineage. He was adopted by Joseph and therefore he was part of Joseph's lineage. And Joseph was the legal heir to the throne. Joseph's lineage was, were legal heirs to the throne of David. But in Luke we also have another lineage of Jesus and it goes through Mary and traces also back to David through a different path, but through also to David. So the, the Ma Matthew lineage traces to David, and actually that's where it splits off from the, from the Lucan um, lineage, because Luke has a different son of David carrying the line, and that's Mary's line. And then there's uh, uh, Matthew's, Matthew's uh, lineage given to us where it comes through Solomon. So Matthew's is the legal uh, right to the throne, but he also has the royal blood in him even through Mary. He has Mary's blood in him, and therefore he is royalty, not only legally, but also in the bloodline. So when you think about legal and then bloodline, you can think of like, oh, if you go over to England, for whatever reason, they still have kings and queens over there. That still doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, you got Prince William and you got Prince Harry, but only Prince William is an heir to the throne. Because he's the next in the line of succession. And then there's Prince Harry, who's also royalty because he has royal blood in him, but he's not in line for the throne. Well, Jesus was both. That's what the two lineages do for us. They show us that not only does he have the bloodline through Mary, he also has the right to the throne through his adopted father, Joseph. This child called God Saves is great because he is a king like none other. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He is therefore an eternal king. For Mary now, the picture was starting to come into focus. As she hears these words, perhaps she was beginning to clue into that this child of hers was the heir of the throne of David, and therefore was the long-awaited and promised Messiah. She had most likely heard the prophecy that Nathan had given to David in 2 Samuel where Nathan says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And now before her eyes, this angel is telling her that she will bear a king. And that this king is no normal king. He is the Messiah and he will reign forever. And therefore, the next thing we see here in this text is his eternality. He is a king forever. Therefore, Mary had to be stunned as she heard these truths. This was no normal child. This was no normal child. This child would be a savior. He would be great among men. But he would be more than a man. He would be the son of the most high God. And he would be the Davidic king and the Messiah who would reign forever. 
he would be an eternal king. And this good news left her totally bewildered in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now at first glance, we may wonder why Mary's asking this question about virginity. I mean, couldn't she just have assumed that all this was going to come to pass once her and Joseph were fully married and were able to consummate, consummate, consummate the marriage? Well, her response reveals two things. Number one, that she understood that this was going to be an immediate thing. The angel was coming to her before she was married for a reason. And she understood that this child was to be divine. So how was this going to happen? This had to be some sort of different type of conception. How was this going to happen? Now, there's no lack of faith here on Mary's part. Zechariah's response, if you'll remember back, was one of unbelief. When he said to the Gabriel, how shall I know this? That's what, Gabriel, that's what Zechariah said. How shall I know this? And what does Mary say? She says, how will this be? And you may think, well, that, what's the difference there? Well, Zechariah is asking a question to have the angel prove to him so that he can intellectually grasp this. Whereas Mary is humbly asking God just to shed more light on the situation. Asking God to shed light on a situation isn't unbelief. Asking God to prove it is. It's okay for us to ask God, God, how are you going to do this? How are you going to make this happen? I don't, I don't understand. It's not okay for us to say, God, I'm not following you. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to believe this unless you prove it somehow. I'm going to lay some fleece out inside my door this morning. And it better be wet, God, or I'm not going to the mission field. That's unbelief. And what Mary has here is simply asking God in humility for more information about how he's going to pull this off. So how was God going to do this? Well, that's what makes the rest of the story so extraordinary. Number three, it's a story of an extraordinary miracle. Verse 35, and the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The miracle is the virgin conception, not really the virgin birth. Okay? Everything else in the story is just the same way it's happened for everyone else in humanity. That she carried the baby for nine months, and that he was born, just like other children were born. She went through labor pains, everything else. The miracle isn't in the birth, and we call it the virgin birth. It's really the conception, the virgin conception. Now, this, remember, this is Luke, a physician, sharing this with us. It's a miracle, and it's God breaking into human history in a unique, and let me make this clear, and necessary way to bring about the salvation of his people. It's unique, first of all. Now, skeptics today like to say, would like to sound intellectually superior to you when they say, you know, I don't believe in the virgin birth because virgins don't have babies. I, just don't, I don't believe in it because, well, that doesn't make them some great mind. Well, duh. I mean, even Mary and Joseph and everyone else in this story are shocked by the situation. It wasn't like they were idiots back then and thought that somehow babies could come from nothing. Doesn't make you an intellectual giant to figure that out. But see, we live in an era where science believes only in what can be repeatable. 
You've got to be able to repeat this experiment. Other than that, it's just, it's just theory. It's just out there. But if you can repeat it, you can prove it. Well, then science will never prove the virgin birth. Don't ever expect that it will because it's a unique thing. A unique event in the history of the world. Dr. Luke knows what we know. Virgin births don't happen unless God intervenes and breaks into the normal realm of the created order and does something unique. There are two utterly unique moments outside of creation. Let's just say after time and space have been created, there are two utterly unique and unrepeatable moments in the Scripture that we can point to that science rejects today. But they're simply a demonstration that God is sovereign over what he created. And that is the virgin birth and the resurrection. Those two unique events cannot be duplicated. Other miracles can be, well, quote unquote duplicated. Remember the, the Pharaoh's magicians? As Moses came and did some pretty spectacular things, they would then copy them. Some, they did some pretty spectacular stuff too. But no one's ever been able to copy the virgin birth, and no one has ever been able to rise from the dead. These two unique moments in history are the demonstration of a God who rules the world, stepping into creation and doing something different. There is mystery here that requires us to put away the idolatrous God of our own making and embrace the sovereign ruler of the universe. When my dad was in seminary, now I joked in Talked about Andrew being from Southern Seminary and how he had special grace bestowed upon him because of that. And part of me really believes that. But Southern Seminary has not always been the bastion of theological truth. When my dad was at seminary, he had a professor who taught openly in class. This would be the mid-1970s. That the only way Mary could have been impregnated was by a Roman soldier. Who raped her. In other words, virgins don't have babies. To which someone clashes and said, well, duh. Because God has to make something happen out of nothing. And you see, that professor believed in a different God. It is not the God of the scriptures. How we react to this text, and believe it or not, 50% of evangelical, evangelical Christians, say they do not believe in the virgin birth. 50%. That's 50% of evangelicals that are worshiping a God of their own making and not the God of Scripture. It's stories like this that expose people's true worldview and people's true view of God. Gabriel says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is going to be a marvelous working of God's glorious presence in and over Mary. Two things in this phrase hearken Mary's mind and should hearken our minds back to the Old Testament. First of all, when he says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, really that should draw our minds to the creation account in Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The creative work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, would be involved here just as he was in the creation of the universe along with the other two persons of the Trinity, 
to carry out a creative work in Mary's womb. Something from nothing. No baby. God's spirit moves. Ex nihilo, baby. The creative work of God. And secondly, when he says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, the Most High God produces the Son of the Most High. This phrase, however, should take our minds to Exodus where the presence of God filled the tabernacle. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this exact same phrase to describe that event. The phrase was also used later in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to describe what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration as the glory of God overshadowed them. In other words, the very presence of God in the form of the Holy Spirit would come over her and create the miracle of the virgin conception. And that's all the details Gabriel can give us. And that's all the details we need. And it's enough detail to either believe or disbelieve what Gabriel says next. Therefore, because of what he just said, therefore, because of the Spirit of God overshadowing her in, a cre in creative glory, the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. If you reject the virgin conception, you reject the Son of God. He says, because of this glorious, miraculous work, he will be called the son of, the son of God. He is the Son of God because of the miraculous conception, the virgin conception. Otherwise, there's nothing special about this birth story, and there's nothing special about this Jesus. He's holy, set apart, different, distinct, unique, one of a kind. The only child to be called holy. Yeah, when I post pictures of my kids on Facebook, I get lots of comments. Like, oh, how cute. Oh, how big they're getting. Oh, how precious. No one has ever put, oh, how holy. Okay? I wouldn't put, oh, how holy. And no one puts, oh, how holy, because we know our children. We know our children are unholy. It doesn't take them long after coming out to reveal their unholiness to us. Children are not holy except one. Holy, set apart, distinct, unique, pure, without sin, without blemish, without fault. Pure God begetting pure God, the Son. Holy as the Heavenly Father is holy. Holy as the Heavenly Father is holy. And the only way we can be holy as the Heavenly Father is holy is to be united with the Son. And to sort of bolster Mary's faith here in this amazing truth that the angel has just said, he goes on in verse 36 and says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. I think this is part of the help that the Holy Spirit's giving her, that God is giving her. When she asks, how will this happen? He wants to help strengthen her faith and is going to help her know about what's going on with Elizabeth. But Mary's... Ultimately, Mary's ability to embrace this extraordinary angelic announcement and our ability to embrace this extraordinary angelic announcement and the doctrine of the incarnation that it teaches us relies on our ability to believe. Do we trust in? Do we embrace the sovereign, omnipotent God? Do we believe what he says 
For, as verse 37 says, nothing will be impossible with God. This is what God told Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 14, when he announced to him that they were going to have a baby. At him, Abraham being 100 years old. I like what J.C. Ryle says. Let me quote him here. He says, faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. And I wish I could think of quotes like that. That's wonderful. Faith never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Let me point out one other thing. The exact same phrase that is used here about nothing being impossible with God to help us understand the sovereign omnipotence of God in the miracle conception is also used to help us understand the sovereign power of God in our salvation. For it was after the disciples were stunned when Jesus in Matthew 19 said that it, would, it was easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a uh, needle for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven? What was their response to that? you remember? They said, then who then can be saved? Who then, Jesus, can be saved? This sounds impossible. And what does Jesus say? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Friends, our only hope to understand the incarnation is resting in the sovereign omnipotence of God, and our only hope for salvation is to rest in the sovereign omnipotence of God. If you can't believe that God can make a virgin pregnant with his son, then you can't believe God can save you. Matter of fact, let me say this. If you don't believe in the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, then you do not believe the gospel that can save you. God broke into the time and space that he had created through the glorious and mysterious incarnation. And so let that be my last thing I give you guys for your notes. Go back one slide for me there, guys. The gospel demands that the incarnation be fully believed, although it can never be fully explained. The gospel demands that the incarnation be fully believed. Let me take us way back. Genesis 3. Verse 15, the first proclamation of the gospel, if you will. I will put enmity, this is God speaking to the snake, speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, or your seed, and her seed. And he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or as other translations put it, he shall crush your head. Her offspring, not their offspring... He doesn't say you and Adam's offspring. He says your offspring. He says your seed. Women don't have the seed. Men have the seed. But the prophecy speaks of her seed. There had to become, there had to come a child born of woman, but without the sinful nature passed down through the father's seed. The virgin birth is demanded by Genesis 3.15. And it is therefore demanded by the gospel. For Christ had to be born as man, 100% man, but without the sinful curse that has been passed down from generation to generation through the Father. 
And although Eve sinned too, it was the man, Adam, held responsible. And the Bible teaches that it is through Adam that sin is passed on. And it was the transgression of Adam, and thus in Adam, that all should die. So there had to become a new man, born of a woman, seed of a woman. Human flesh of human flesh, but without the curse of Adam passed on. This new man would come and crush the head of the ancient serpent, and thus become the last Adam through whom many would be made alive. That's the gospel. Without the virgin birth, you have no gospel. Genesis 3.15 makes no sense. It's crucial. How are we then to respond to such an extraordinary story? We're to believe. We're to believe. Which is where the story ends with Mary. In verse 38, Mary said, Behold... This is how she responds to this great and glorious truth. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I am the servant of the Lord. Dule. I am a slave, a bondservant of the Lord. Let it be. Just let it be. Let it be to me as according to your word. She had to know that what awaited her were some pretty tough days. The appearance of sexual immorality. What would Joseph think? What would her parents think? Neighbors. But she trusted in and she believed in revelation instead of being preoccupied with her reputation. Let me say that again. She believed in the revelation instead of being preoccupied with her reputation. How about you? Do you believe? Will you bow your knee to the king and say, let it be? Will you do it even if your reputation must come in second to the, rev- to the revelation of God? You see, believing in a virgin birth today can put your reputation at risk. Just, just go Facebook it and see how many friends like it. Believing in a virgin birth will, will have people calling you a little wacky. You silly fool. You're living in the 21st century and you're believing in 2,000-year-old myths and legends? Get with it. That's your reputation going down the drain. What do you believe in? Do you care about your reputation so much that your heart is hardened to believe the Word of God? Or do you believe and put all your hope in what God says above everything else? Let it be. Let us be like Mary. Who was given grace, given grace to embrace this child who is the only Savior, who is great, who is 100% man, yet the Son of the Most High God, who is indeed the eternal King of the universe. Believe. Get the fine china out and believe it. This is not some Christmas myth like Santa Claus, that you put on the front of a card and send it off to help people feel warm and fuzzy about the world. This is a gospel truth that you either embrace and believe or you reject at the risk of your own eternal damnation. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And pray this morning and close with a song.
Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask now that your spirit would have freedom in our hearts to respond to you in song, to respond to you by the bringing of offerings and tithe and by bringing our prayer requests. But more importantly, Lord, may we respond in belief. May we respond with faith. May we believe what the scriptures teach us about the Son. Oh Lord, woe to anyone in here who doesn't believe in the virgin birth. And God, I pray that there would be those here this morning, perhaps, Lord willing, that for the first time they have understood that the gospel is not about meriting anything. We are not, hail us, O full of grace. It is, woe to us, we have nothing, and we need to be given grace. And so my prayer this morning is that your, your spirit would move and convict hearts that we need your grace to even believe this. Because if we just have the standard 21st century minds that have been so inoculated by this weak Christianity that dominates our nation and, and this scientific materialistic way of viewing the world that dismisses anything that we can't understand, then we will not believe and we need your grace to break through those hard hearts. So Jesus, come and do a work. No man can come into the Father unless he's drawn. No man can come to Jesus unless he's drawn by the Father and by the Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus. Draw men to you. Make us believe. And for those of us in here who may be going through crisis of faith, help our unbelief. Because there are times when you, only, you get called an idiot so many times by people for what you believe. That Satan's little voice begins to creep into your ear and you begin to wonder, am I an idiot? Oh, God, help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith. Preserve us. Hold on to us. Let no one snatch us from your hand. That's our prayer. Let us behold the glory of Christ in this text. Let us behold the glory of Christ as we sing about him. Lord, be magnified as we sing these songs. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.